This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, the CDC says it's safe for vaccinated folks to leave the mask at home, and Governor Jared Polis has lifted the statewide mask mandate. But what does all of this actually mean for Coloradans? We do have people who are anti-vaxxers and who don't believe in getting vaccinated. And I'm like, that's totally cool, but you got to keep your mask on. Coming up, we get a look at how local businesses, schools, and everyday Coloradans are reacting to changes in mask policy. We'll have that and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Should I still wear a mask even though I'm vaccinated? It's a simple question and one that many Coloradans are asking themselves following last week's guidance from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC says it's now safe for vaccinated adults to go without a mask in public, even in settings with more relaxed capacity restrictions. Following the big announcement, Governor Jared Polis dropped Colorado's statewide mask mandate for vaccinated residents, a move that has resulted in some celebration and also some confusion. KUNC's Matt Bloom has been digging into both as a part of the local reaction, and he's with us now. Hey, Matt. Hey, Henry. So first, let's square ourselves with this new guidance. What is that exactly for Colorado? The state's guidance is if you are fully vaccinated, you can safely go without a mask in most public settings. Now, there's a big asterisk to that. And it's if a business or local government still requires a mask, then you're also required to wear one. Over the past several days, we've seen a lot of local governments like Larimer County, the city of Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver counties all get rid of their own mask ordinances and divert to this new state policy that's much less restrictive than we've seen over the past year. In the business world, we're seeing a flurry of places rescinding their mask orders. It's it's hard to keep up with, frankly. Some are keeping them for the time being, generally, it's still a rapidly changing situation. What has the response been like in local businesses? I've seen a range. Some of the bigger national retailers and grocery stores have just lifted their mask requirements for vaccinated residents. On Monday, Target and Starbucks updated their guidance that vaccinated customers no longer need to wear masks. And a lot of local businesses are doing the same thing. I visited a gym, Bodies by Perseverance, in Denver's Five Points neighborhood uh, that's no longer requiring their clients to wear masks. Courtney Samuel, the owner, says he's asking if people are vaccinated. And that's about it. He's just going by the honor system. We haven't gone to the point of asking people to pull out their cards, but I feel our community here is going to be super honest with us if they're, you know, if they are, if they're not. And... um, we do have people who are anti-vaxxers and who don't believe in getting vaccinated. And I'm like, that's totally cool, but you got to keep your mask on. Um, and then those who like, hey, I'm, I'm vaccinated. It's been two weeks. Let the party begin taking the mask off. He says he feels safe doing this and it's an important step toward getting back to normal. He doesn't sound too concerned, but I have seen concern from other businesses about being the ones to enforce the state's new mask guidance. Right. And the state's guidance doesn't really make it clear on how businesses should go about doing that. So a lot of them feel like they've been left to answer that question on their own. Um, And ultimately, this means it may end up just falling to frontline workers uh, or, or the business owners themselves to enforce. And that's really concerning to Kim Cordova. She's the president of the United Commercial Food Workers Union's Colorado chapter that represents thousands of grocery store workers in the state. Surely we don't want the workers being you know, um, tasked with that job um, because of how 
you know, irate some of the customers get. And, you know, we've seen verbal and physical attacks on workers over the issue. Um, and also, if if the companies take a position that the workers have to wear a mask, but not the customers, you know, that's just, that's bad for the employees, too. I mean, it's mixed, it's mixed messages. She's also concerned that this might send the message to the public that the pandemic's over and we can just kind of forget about it when when it's not. Before we let you go, I want to pivot to schools. The school year is almost over, but uh, is anything going to change when it comes to students and, and teachers wearing masks in the classroom? Well, Governor Polis, in talking about the state's new mask guidance, said that it's up to school districts to decide for themselves how they want to approach this. And a lot of schools in northern Colorado, at least, are taking a much more cautious approach than than a lot of businesses that I've spoken with. I talked to Teresa Myers with Greeley Evans District 6 about how they're thinking about masks. You know, for schools, it's really a challenge because more than half of our kids don't even qualify to get a vaccine right now. And we are seeing students get sick. So... Um, To err on the side of safety, we will be continuing our mask policies through June. Poudre School District in Fort Collins is also taking this very cautious approach for safety reasons. Looking ahead to the coming weeks, uh, what are you hearing from public health officials about how we should navigate this new uneven landscape when it comes to mask requirements? The short answer is even if you are vaccinated to keep a mask with you, maybe like in your back pocket or your car, because for a while there will still be a lot of places that require masks. They're also stressing that the new guidelines apply only to vaccinated people. And we know from state data, there are still a lot of people who aren't vaccinated. There's actually an extended public health order that still requires masks for unvaccinated people in a lot of public places like schools, DMVs, healthcare providers. That's supposed to last through June 1st. And lastly, they're also hoping that this new phase of mask rules is an incentive to folks who may not have gotten their shot yet to go out and get one. But it's it's unclear if this is going to be a big driver for more vaccinations or not. KUNC's Matt Bloom, thanks for your reporting on this, Matt. You're welcome. Companies are constantly tracking what we do online. And though personal data like marriage records and property tax documents have always been publicly available, the Internet has made it easier than ever to collect, share, and sell personal data. But a new bill in the Colorado legislature aims to give consumers the power to put an end to this. Here to tell us more about the bill and how it might affect Coloradans if it were to pass is Tamara Chung. She covers tech, business, and the economy for the Colorado Sun. Tamara, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Henry. Let's get into the data before we get into the legislature. This is definitely your area. Help us understand the kind of ecosystem we're talking about where data is collected online and then sold. Well, if you are any sort of internet user or any sort of consumer, your personal data is probably out there somewhere. You know, either some company, some retailer has it, uh, some government agency, Many strangers you may not even know may have it because data is collected online and offline and often it's resold to the largest uh, bidder. And we don't always know what's out there. And sometimes you may see ads online and then you realize, oh, 
So that company was tracking me online and, and now they're trying to sell this stuff to me. How did they know this? And what kind of data are we talking about? Is it demographic data or is it more like, oh, this person clicked on this and then went to this kind of website? It's everything. I think this whole idea of consumer data and these new set of rules and policies to sort of protect what a consumer has out there. I mean, it, it can run the gamut. I mean, anything from your home address to social security number, past jobs, past car loans, it's probably all out there. Consumers don't even know what's out there. This bill is trying to take aim at helping consumers figure out what data is out there by asking companies, you know, show me my data. And if you don't like it, tell them to delete it. And is this legislation similar to what we've seen in other states? I know I think California and Virginia have also passed data privacy laws. It's a bit of half and half. And so the thing about these data privacy or data collection and um, security laws is just because you hear this, you know, delete my data or stop collecting my data, that doesn't necessarily mean what you may think it means can take you back to what kind of what started this all was actually the uh, General Data Protection Act in Europe. So the European Union passed this law a couple years ago, and it was very, it was a very staggering law for data privacy because it actually gave consumers or Europeans the right to opt into data collection. So it was very proactive to protecting the consumer. California passed a similar law in 2018, but one of the things that privacy advocates don't like about it is it's an opt out. I mean, you have to go to every site and tell them, stop collecting my data. And then we have another series of laws from um, Washington State and Virginia. So Washington State put together a law that was backed by local businesses, I mean, by the technology and business community, including Amazon. So there were other things that made that law a little more business friendly. And even though it has not passed in Washington state yet, the text of that law has been adopted by several other states, including Virginia, which just passed their data privacy law a couple months ago. That's considered more of a business friendly consumer data protection law, whereas the California one is considered more of a consumer friendly protection law. What about the bill that's working its way through Colorado's legislature? How are folks reacting to that? Is it more consumer friendly or more business friendly? There's some big differences between the California law and what's proposed in Colorado. It, in California, there's data that's protected. I mean, there's actual info, like your financial information is protected by the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which is a federal law. And Colorado exempted that. So any, any company that has that financial data, the data is exempted from the California law, but it's protected by the federal law. Now in, in Colorado, that data is, is also exempted, but so is the company. So if there's a bank company, for example, you know, they're not allowed to share your financial information because that's a federal law, but they as a marketing company could still sell your information and that's not going to be protect that's going to be exempted under the Colorado law. Interesting. What is the status of the Colorado Privacy Act right now? Is it is it likely to pass and where are we at in the process? The bill is about to head to its first floor debate on Tuesday. 
So that will be when you really hear from the different sides and, and the different parties about where they stand on this. So far, the, the bill has passed unanimously in committee, and that's always a good sign that it will pass, you know, maybe with some amendments and stuff. I mean, I, I personally, I have no idea. You know, I, I talked to data privacy advocates and they weren't that happy about it. I talked to some business folks and they weren't quite happy with it because they want it to be a little more clear, a little more, maybe even stricter. So to me, I'm just a reporter trying to report the various sides. Well, Tamara Chung covers tech, business and the economy for the Colorado Sun. Tamara, thank you for breaking down this complicated legislation for us. Thanks again, Henry. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Snowpack plays a big role in the West's water supply, but some researchers say that groundwater is equally important, particularly in the Colorado River watershed. From KJZZ in Phoenix, Ron Dungan reports that researchers are examining the walls of the Grand Canyon to better understand how groundwater responds to climate change. Ben Tobin has questions. He's a geologist at the University of Kentucky who started learning about caves as a young man, following the footsteps of his mother, also a geologist. For a time, his work brought him out west to Grand Canyon National Park. Caves are a really special place in many ways. Tobin specializes in what's known as karst hydrology. These are underground systems made up of soluble rocks such as limestone. He says caves are like another world, with blind animals, fossils, and archaeological finds. If you take a moment, you may find small arachnids called pseudoscorpions. I mean, everyone thinks of stalactites and stalagmites, but then we also have these huge, like, gypsum curls that can be multiple feet long that are often, they look like toothpaste being squeezed out of a toothpaste tube. And caves transport water. Underground rivers that start as rainwater and make their way through the Grand Canyon's geology. Tobin wanted to know how the water travels from top to bottom. So in a series of studies that he started several years ago, his team of researchers placed fluorescent dye in sinkholes on the Kaibab Plateau and then hiked down into the canyon to see where the dye came out. It was hiking the equivalent of from sea level to the top of Mount Everest and back down over the course of 200 miles. At first they thought the water would more or less go straight down. I choke about this a lot. Water is lazy. It just wants to go downhill, and so it just finds the easiest way down it can. It flowed downhill, but also horizontally. Some of it showed up about 20 miles away, and it showed up in different springs than the researchers predicted. What was really confusing to me was that it, it never just flowed to one place. It always flowed to multiple places. Water may be lazy, but it's not simple. Understanding the springs is important, he says, because about a quarter of the world's population relies on water that comes from karst systems. We're trying to understand how water gets down to this kind of big regional aquifer. The research also has important implications for the future of the canyon and surrounding communities. Most people think the reason to go to the Grand Canyon is for the big ditch or to float a river trip. But the real beauty and magic of the canyon or the spring-fed side canyons. That's Abe Springer, a geologist at Northern Arizona University who has spent much of his career studying those side canyons and the water that flows in them, such as Kanab Creek. Springer says that water is important to plants and wildlife in the canyon. In the Grand Canyon National Park, there's estimated to be over 750 springs. But there's another reason to understand how the springs work. They make up a significant portion of the Colorado River's flow. 
Springer says that river managers tend to look at annual snowpack and the level of Lake Mead when they assess the regional water supply. He says it's more complicated than that. Most people's perception is that all the flow of the Colorado River comes from a melting glacier in Colorado, and that's completely false. The majority of the contribution of the flow of the Colorado River comes from groundwater. A lot of that groundwater comes from the upper basin states. By the time it gets to the Grand Canyon, the entire river is spoken for. That means six million park visitors, local communities, and tribes have to rely on springs and wells. The importance of groundwater in in the Grand Canyon region cannot be overstated. Fred Tillman is with the U.S. Geological Survey. There's almost no area where groundwater is more critical than in that Grand Canyon area, even though the Colorado River is right there. They They don't have access or rights to it. In recent years, resorts, uranium mines, and other developments have been proposed in the Grand Canyon region. Critics say there's not enough water and that new demands could upset its unique network of springs. And with climate change, there may be even less in the future. I'm Ron Dungan in Phoenix. That story is a part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KJZZ in Phoenix, distributed by KUNC in Colorado, and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. In honor of May being Asian American and Pacific Islander Month, the Artwork Center for Contemporary Arts in Loveland is hosting an exhibition that aims to elevate the stories and experiences of Asian Americans in the state. Open through May 29th, the exhibition features artwork made exclusively by Asian people in Colorado. Colorado Edition's Erin O'Toole spoke with the exhibition's curator, Jane Burke, and with Grace G, one of the artists featured in the show. Erin will take it from here. Jane, I'd like to start with you. You are the curator of this exhibition, which is titled Colorado Asians. Whose idea was this exhibition and how did you get involved and how did it all come together? I was approached by um, Sarah Labar, who is the executive director at Artwork Center for Contemporary Art in Loveland. And, you know, she had the idea actually of doing an exhibition that coincided with Asian American Heritage Month in May. The idea to center around specifically local artists in Colorado was sort of my idea because I had grown up in northern Colorado and I think the site specificity of it being in Loveland to me was really part of the story. There is a strong Asian American presence, although we don't maybe visibly see it in our day-to-day in our communities. The impetus was about to center around feelings of belonging. I really wanted to kind of take away the idea of otherness in communities like Loveland. Grace, I'm wondering if you could tell us just a bit about your art that is featured in the show. The art that you'll see is thread sculptures of organs, internal organs. So they were made in response to a health crisis that I had. In traditional Chinese medicine, certain organs are associated with certain emotions. Kidneys are often associated with fear, liver with anger, and lungs with grief. So I worked with the organ and the emotion to try and heal that piece. So I think that healing is possible through art, whether that's healing a physical or emotional or the anti-Asian hate, it's possible to be healed, to be addressed through art. While some of the art in the show is not directly about Asian identity. I understand other artwork is centered on being Asian in Colorado. Jane, can you tell us a bit about some of the artwork in the show where Asian identity is a main focus? 
You know, there is a really strong undertone about immigration. A lot of the artists are first-generation immigrants to the U.S. One artist in particular, Sammy Lee, made an installation called FOB Arrived, and it's comprised of suitcases that are covered in hanji or mulberry paper that's pounded. It's a Korean technique. And in this particular work, you know, she's referring to the time that she came to the U.S., When she was only 16 years old, she came by herself to study. And, you know, she's really talking about the decisions that immigrants have to make in terms of what they bring and what they leave behind. So in her case, she came to the U.S. with two pieces of luggage and a carry-on. And so it's a very powerful kind of symbolic object of immigration. There's another South Korean artist, Su Cho, and his work is really about identity. He is talking about sort of the duality of being Korean and American. And when he goes to South Korea, he feels too Americanized. And when he's obviously in America feeling too Korean. So I think we can all relate to that as as Asians. And he's expressed it in his artwork through a beautiful oil painting that is a pojagi or a Korean wrapping cloth. And so it's really to talk about a mask so to speak, of how we operate in the world, of really we have to put a mask sort of on our identity. This exhibition was conceived and the call to artists went out before the recent rise of Asian American hate crimes across the country. Now that we are in this moment and we're seeing an increase in, you know, racism and violence toward Asians, has that changed the significance of this exhibition or maybe elevated its importance? I'll just say yes. I mean, undoubtedly, I think hearing feedback from the artists, I think it's really brought together the solidarity that I was hoping for and obviously heightened it in this time. You know, not only did it coincide with the Atlanta shooting, but also the Boulder shooting. And so I think through both of those tragedies, there was this sense of community because I do feel, you know, despite the Boulder shooting not being directly related to anti-Asian hate, an artist mentioned, you know, that there was this kind of nervousness around the violence that's happening. I think there's an insecurity of being a minority in Colorado. And so that this show has helped us to have more visibility as, as a stronger network for each other to be able to take up space and to say, you know, we can't feel so alone or so othered because now we know we have each other to lean on. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with what Jane just said. I think the community piece of it is enormous. Anti-Asian hate is about isolating, it's about silencing, and this actually gives us a voice. You know, it gives us some presence in the community and really unites us, both the viewer and the artist. So it opens up conversations we've never had before, right? So I have faced racism all my life. Only in the past year has anyone ever asked what my experience was. So then we get to speak and we have our voices heard and it allows for healing to begin. Coming back to the title of the exhibition, Colorado Asians, is there anything about the experience of being Asian in America that you think is specific to Colorado? I do think it's just the isolation. I grew up in Northern Colorado and Fort Collins, and, you know, I really was the only Asian. And we recently had a panel discussion where some of the other artists 
talked about growing up in Colorado and quote unquote being the only Asian. And so I think that is really impactful for the people who grew up in Colorado, that there is a specificity to the culture here, which is predominantly still homogenous. In a place like Loveland, you're surrounded by a lot of agriculture. And I think it's not necessarily, you know, the type of environment where you expect to see Asian Americans. And sort of the thesis of the exhibition is that psychological boundary of saying, where do Asians belong? Where where do you see Asian Americans in America? If you don't expect to see Asian people here, you may see them, but you don't see them. And I think probably along with that isolation comes a longing that I actually didn't realize I had here in Colorado, right? So I've been here for 11 years. I never realized how much I longed for that because I didn't in other places where, you know, closer to San Francisco or closer to New York, I could find that. That is what has been brought up for me in this and the joy of connecting. You can visit the Colorado Asians exhibition at the Artwork Center for Contemporary Arts in Loveland. Jane Burke is the curator of the exhibition. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. And Grace G is an artist based in Louisville whose sculptures are featured in the show. Grace, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Erin. And that's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks again for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.